0: To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome. You're listening to New Books in Gender Studies. I'm your host, Shohini Chatterjee, PhD student in Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies at Western University, and I'll be in conversation today with Dr. Julia Bonar about her book, Sexual Citizenship and Disability, Understanding Sexual Support and Policy Practice and Theory, out with Routledge in 2021. Dr. Bonar is a postdoctoral fellow at the School of Social Work, Lund University, and was formerly Marie Curie Individual Fellow at the Center for Disability Studies, School of Sociology, University of Leeds. Welcome to the New Books Network, Julia. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I'm very excited to hear you speak about your scholarship. Um, To set the ball rolling, could you tell us a little bit about how you came to explore the intersections of sexuality, citizenship, and disability, and how did it culminate in this book? Yeah, so I started thinking about these
2: issues when I was a social work student and also working part-time as a personal assistant. And particularly with one of the service users, issues around sexual support came up and I felt that I didn't have any good answers and ways to help the person because this was not talked about at all. And especially working as a personal assistant, which means working alone a lot and having very little contact with colleagues and managers, and even more so as a part-time worker. So essentially there was no support, neither for service users or for us as workers. And I think that In most cases, sexuality had not even crossed people's minds as relevant to work with within personal assistance services. So around that time, I decided to do a master's degree on this topic. And this led me to interviewing personal assistance users about their experiences with sexual support or maybe lack thereof. And following that, I embarked upon my PhD project. And there I also interviewed personal assistants and managers. So at this time, I was very inspired by the concept of sexual facilitation, which seems to have been developed in parallel by Linda Mona in the US and Sarah Earle in the UK. And so I wanted to discuss the relevance of this concept to the Swedish context. And here in Sweden, the purchase of sex is illegal, and we have a very strong discourse around sex work or prostitution, as it's called here, as an issue of gender inequality, and essentially as a consequence of men's violence against women. So I felt that the space to discuss sexual support, even without the alternative of sex work, was very narrow in the Swedish context, Because many people, both disability advocates, but also workers' union representatives, very quickly jumped to the conclusion that I was talking about sex work. So I guess my kind of mission with my PhD project was to explain sexual facilitation, that it's actually a lot of different things that can also be non-intimate assistance, for example, helping a person to prepare before a date. And so by the end of my project, I actually felt that the discourse was shifting a bit, or at least that the people I spoke to were starting to understand what sexual support can mean in practice without crossing the boundary to the illegal purchase of sex. And of course, during my research, I came across a lot of interesting international studies as well as civil society organizations working on these issues. So I was really interested in learning more about that and trying to see if I could find a connection between a country's or a state's policy on these issues and whether that could be translated to there being available sexual supports or not and in turn whether advocacy organizations had any role to play in these developments so this was the time when i was planning my postdoc project and i decided to focus on the concept of sexual citizenship because i thought that it captured these issues and these connections albeit not necessarily including a comprehensive disability perspective. And that was what kind of prompted me to be more interested in looking into it empirically as well. So sorry for this long (laughs) story, but I think it's good to just explain how this came about. And it's uh, yeah uh, quite a couple of number of years uh, work actually.
1: Yeah, this is, you've had such a fascinating and critical journey. Um, I have so many questions to ask, especially because our research interests overlap in many wonderful ways. Um, and your book has given me so much to think about. Um, But before we get into the complexities and challenges that your book throws up, um, I was really intrigued by the fact that you conducted interviews and carried out policy analysis um, to figure out the nature of sexual support across not one, but five countries, which to my mind is a huge scholarly undertaking. Um, Could you tell our audience what prompted you to venture into such analysis and um, how do you think this framework helped find answers to your questions for this project and and raise new questions about this? disability
2: justice? Yeah, so during my PhD project, I found these really interesting projects or organizations in other countries. So for example, the Netherlands, I knew about these special type of sex care organizations, which say that they are not sex workers, but they are within the framework of healthcare. And so this was really interesting to me how they framed the, their work within the discourse of sex work versus healthcare, And I wanted to know more about that and also see if there was any connection to the policies in the Netherlands. Uh, in the Netherlands, uh, their sex work is legal. And so there are available... Um, sex work providers who also provide services to disabled people but apparently there was also this need or desire for specialist sex care services so that interested me a lot and that's why i chose the netherlands to be one of the case studies and then i had also heard about touching base an organization in new south wales australia and that is also an interesting organization because It is sex workers and disabled people working together on sex workers rights and disability rights. And this was so foreign to me from a Swedish perspective where, as I said before, sex work is very negatively viewed and I don't think that any disability rights organization would want to associate with a sex work organization so i was really interested in looking into what led to this development of the organization and also the policies that they have there Um, and then england well that was actually where i was doing my work at leeds university so of course it was interesting to look at the context in which i was living and but i also knew about some organizations there so for example the outsiders trust Um, And they have um, some, a couple of different um, work that they do. Uh, But some of them is um, supporting sex workers and sexological body workers and others working with disabled people. And trying to teach both policy and practice issues on how to better work with sexual support. And also disabled people have been involved with the organization. So I thought it was a, a a, good example of three different cases and that it would be interesting to um, compare them. And then, of course, in the background, I had my Swedish work, which I could yeah, use just like background, essentially.
1: Yeah, it's definitely made the project very, very enriching. Um, if we can now get into the book and ask um, really the fundamental question undergirding your project, um I know this since I have now read your book, but uh, for our audience, uh, could you tell us what you mean by uh, sexual citizenship and how does it relate to disability justice and uh, crib sexual citizenship? Yes,
2: of course. So I have used the concept of sexual citizenship from Diane Richardson. And there is also a similar concept called intimate citizenship, Um, but I chose sexual citizenship because I really wanted to not shy away from the nitty-gritty concerning sex and sexuality. And um, so I have always been inspired by Richardson's work around sexual citizenship and But I also saw that she didn't write much about disability perspectives, although some she did. But I wanted to dig deeper into that. And so if we look at her framework for sexual citizenship, it's kind of uh, divided into three parts. And one is the right to sexual identity. And that's about, you know, being able to say that I am this sexuality or rather I am a sexual person, as often is the problem for disabled people, that they are not seen as sexual. So there I could see that from the original framework of sexual citizenship, which grew from the LGBTQ movements, rights agenda and advocacy, this was a little bit different for disabled people, because it's not so much that um, there's uh, trouble with having access to certain institutional rights to marriage and so on, but more to actually be seen as sexual in the first place. So that is the most grounding, or how you say, basic issue that's at stake here. And the second Part of her framework is the the right for having sex, essentially. And this came from the advocacy from LGBT people that in some places you were not allowed to have sex, uh, homosexual sex, for example. And so for disabled people, I see this rights claim as more to do with actually being allowed to have sex at all. And this, of course, relates to the first uh, part that I mentioned of being seen as sexual. But for example, in, in group homes, there can be problems with staff not allowing those living there to have sex or to be in relationships, but also for people with mobility impairments who use personal assistance services, there can be problems with daring to ask for sexual support and by that being able to have sex. And then the third part is the relationships-based rights claims so seeking rights within social institutions and public validation of your sexuality and your sexual needs and this can also have to do with if there are not enough social supports or disability supports so that you can maintain a relationship then of course i see it as you don't have sexual citizenship so these three aspects together, I think, captured very well sexual citizenship in Richardson's framing. And then with my additions of the disability perspective, it became quite uh, interesting to look at in the different countries. Like maybe some in some countries only one or two aspects were um, advocated for by the organizations and, and so on, these
1: differences. Mm-hmm. Your, your book deals with sexual supports sought by disabled people as a way of claiming um, sec- sexual citizenship. Um, could you talk a little bit about what is meant by sexual support and how it is critical for developing an expansive understanding of accessibility and um, justice?
2: Yeah, so uh, in this regard, the sexual supports perspective, I'm still inspired by sexual facilitation concept by Earl and Mona that I mentioned earlier. So first I would like to say that sexual support is very individual. It depends on what the individual wants and what kind of support they need, depending on their accessibility needs as well and how their support structure looks and so on. And this can of course change throughout one's life or during different periods in life when one is uh, single or in relationships. So it can look very different. So I think in that regard, it's important in policy work to work together with disabled people, disabled service users and advocacy organizations to really get to know the needs around sexual support And I think that sexual support is an important aspect to include in sexual citizenship because there are disabled people who are not able to have sex on their own, whether uh, it's for masturbation or together with a partner or partners. And so support within their general care structure, for example, personal assistance, could be one option. Um, depending on what type of sexual support is needed. But also for some, it's more interesting to seek out sexual services of different kinds or maybe sex education, but also empowerment and just learning about your body and your needs is very
1: relevant here. Yeah. Um, As I was going through your book, I was thinking how access to sexual support is among other factors determined by class. You write that funds are often unavailable to variously marginalised disabled people to access sexual services, and and this denies many of us our human rights. Do you think sexual citizenship in in the context of disability justice can re-signify, in a way, both equity and justice?
2: Well, I definitely think that sexual citizenship is closely tied to citizenship in general and not least social citizenship and the availability and access to support services. So I think that without that basic level of citizenship and having enough support in your daily life, it makes it much more difficult to access sexual support or maybe sometimes even to imagine it as necessary. Uh, some people have said that sexuality becomes a luxury in times of austerity, when there are cutbacks to services, or where services are not widely available to begin with. So I guess you could say that sexual citizenship mirrors a person's general citizenship status, but also power hierarchies in society. So talking about ableism and disability oppression in general.
1: Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned that sexual support for disabled pe- uh, people can bring disability justice and sex workers movements to form alliances and build solidarity because not only are service users disabled um, and their access to sexual service has to be seen as a right, but also what has to be borne in mind is the fact that many service providers are also disabled. Um, would you like to tell us what a movement and a, a unified frontier can achieve for sex workers' rights as well as for disability justice and accessibility?
2: Yeah, I guess my case study of the state of New South Wales in Australia is a good example here because there's a long standing alliance between disability rights advocates and sex workers' rights advocates, as I mentioned before. And this is the case study that also shows the most successful implementation of sexual citizenship, both in policy and in practice. And I think that this is largely owing to this alliance and their persistence advocacy and work throughout the years. I think it's yeah, about twenty years now that they have been working on this. So I definitely think that collaboration between the different stakeholders is essential. Firstly, to learn about each other's needs and preconditions. And secondly, because, I mean, we are stronger together rather than
1: isolated, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you also mentioned briefly queer-crip alliances in Spanish communities where sexual assistance is not normative. Um, and, and also in Italy, if I'm not mistaken, um, what possibilities in terms of policy making, does this create for disability justice? And do you see this taking sh- shape in, in a concrete way elsewhere?
2: Yeah, so I really love the Spanish community and If you don't already know about it, they have this documentary called Yes We Fuck. (laughs) And um, they have been working really closely together among the Crip and queer uh, groups, advocacy groups, and really working on both showing people, like the general public, about sex and disability, but also just learning from each other. So queer people learning from disabled people and vice versa, because They found that actually there were knowledge gaps between these groups and starting to work together actually showed the possibilities for being um, more vocal together and having more resources as well and trying to find new ways of showing crip sexualities and so on. So I think that can be a good example for policymakers to see that actually there are Uh, not just one but two groups working together and that their voice must be heard and perhaps that is a stronger message for policymakers to actually want to do something about it Um, but of course there's always the heteronormative framework in many societies as well so it's not easy work but i think working together makes it easier and I'm sure that there are examples from other places as well. I'm thinking about the Sins Invalid in the US. Um, There is a small group here in Sweden as well. And actually yesterday I heard about the new feminist disability advocacy group in the Netherlands. and Probably there are many, many more around the world.
1: Yeah, and I think those voices need to be heard, and and their experiential knowledge needs to be centered um, yeah. for policymakers to really affect um, um, change that's that's beneficial, uh, beneficial and, and enduring. Um, in your book, you also write that uh, in in countries where sex work is illegal, it makes makes accessing sexual service difficult for disabled people. Um, This again um, sort of makes me circle back to the question of building solidarity between sex workers and disabled people um, since um, the latter's access to sexual assistance could, among other things, hinge on the legalization of sex work. Um, How do you think the criminalization of sex work then goes against um, disability justice?
2: Yeah, I guess not everyone not everyone would agree that it does, especially here in Sweden. Um, but definitely in some of the countries where I were, uh, the groups that I followed thought that. And in a way, uh, if disabled people want to access sex work services, and there are available sex work services, then that shouldn't be a problem. So like they are talking about in New South Wales, in Australia, people with disabilities should be uh, able to access these services like everyone else in society. They shouldn't be hindered by just being disabled. But in terms of, for example, the Swedish context, it becomes another uh, discourse where disabled people feel like, why should they be able to access sex work when nobody else can? You see the difference?
1: Um, your book encompasses two projects. The first one, as you have pointed out, um, emerged out of your doctoral research on sexual facilitation for people with mobility impairment um, as perceived and managed in Swedish um, personal assistance services. And the second one undertook um, an international comparative sort of, not really comparative, but an international um, um sort of a cross-national study about sexual support in the UK, Netherlands, New South Wales and Australia. Um, Could you briefly walk us through these projects and what was your rationale um, behind bringing them together for your work?
2: Yeah, I think like I said before that I found that these countries or states had very different policies on sexuality and disability and also different kind of groups working on these issues. And I thought it would be interesting to show the differences and explain them, but also try to analyze what these differences were based on. And that's where the policy analysis comes in as well, like showing how the groups have emerged either from a lack of policy that they are fighting for or actually from a possibility in policy Uh, in which they found uh, a gap, um, such as in New South Wales where sex work was legal, but there was not really any policy on disabled people's rights to sex work and also sexual supports in general. Um, So bringing them together, I think, shows these multitudes of varieties and alternatives and also shows how they all relate to this broader scope of sexual citizenship, um, but also showing that, like I talk about in the end of the book, sexual citizenship in policy or sexual citizenship in practice, and how that can
1: actually differ both within countries and between them. Right. Um, I would really like us to get into the case studies you bring up. Uh, If we begin uh, with, Sweden, you write that since there is legal ambiguity regarding how sexual assistance can be sought by disabled people, um, personal assistance holds significantly more authority than service users. Um, How do you think the social legal ambiguity can be done away with so that workers' rights can coexist alongside disabled people's um, rights in Sweden?
2: Yeah, it's a bit difficult because workers' rights are very strong in Sweden. We have very strong unions. And, well, within the context of sex work being uh, illegal to purchase and workers feeling that they don't want to be associated with sex work, I think there's a great resentment towards those issues or working with sexual supports. And I think maybe... There needs to be more education around sexual rights and disability rights because in some of my my interviews, uh, personal assistants and managers didn't really seem to have this knowledge. And of course, if you don't have that knowledge, it's not that easy to see that you actually have to work with this and, and be able to implement the rights that we have in the laws and in the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities that Sweden has ratified. But I also think that one of the issues is disability rights organizations' own work around these these issues. So there haven't been much advocacy on this, and so it has been easy to just um, ignore in a way, because if disabled people themselves are not fighting for their sexual rights, then of course why would others do it? But actually, there is a project going on at the moment with one of the largest disability rights organizations and sexual rights organization. And I think that this could be a welcome change in both policy and practice for the future in Sweden.
1: Absolutely. I I do think that most of the advocacy work that's done by disabled people gets ignored because uh, it's at the end of the day it, it comes down to whose voice and whose knowledge matters. Yeah um, You also write that assistant uh, uh, sort of assistance users experience of accessing sexual support is often gendered and that age and gender figure prominently in how care work is navigated. Um, would you like to expand on this? Yeah, so
2: already before working on my PhD, I saw some research from Sweden and and also from some other countries that have similar systems for personal assistance, that there were issues around both gender and sexuality and age. So in my case, it had to do with young female personal assistants who felt that they were sometimes regarded by male assistance users and also often older male assistance users as uh, kind of okay to sexually harass, uh, okay to, um, how do you say, uh, grab or... Yeah, I can't find the English word, but um, so sexually harassing in, in uh, basically. And um, of course, that is always unacceptable behavior, even though it's a disabled person doing that. And even though disabled people in general are... Uh, lower in the ability hierarchy in our society but that also made these kinds of situations made the discussion to be more about how to protect personal assistance from some sexually harassing assistance users and of course then we can't get to the actually core of the issue why are these men behaving in this way Perhaps there is uh, an impairment effect of some kind. We know that from brain injury survivors, for instance, but it can also be about sexual frustration and not having your sexual needs met in the adequate way and thereby just trying to express your sexuality in, in the way that you can. And so I think there needs to be more thorough discussion and education around sexuality and disability. Again, like I mentioned before, because usually it's not only about you know, sexual harassment as such, but also some underlying issues.
1: Um, you write about disability justice advocacy by organizations in countries like the UK, where sexual support policies are lacking and the disability rights policies do not do justice to the needs of disabled people um, what particular strides um, these advocacy organizations are making to push for sexual support policies and to do away with um, legal ambiguity regarding the ways in which disabled people can seek sexual citizen, uh, citizenship is um, yeah is, um, is something that i am interested in um, knowing you write that they, they have largely steered clear of bringing sexuality and disability together, but some momentum can still be found in this regard um, and, and hence the question. Yeah, and that was actually one of the aims
2: of my postdoctoral project, to bring together the different organizations or projects working on these issues. Because especially in the UK, I saw that They had never actually collaborated together, even though they were working on very similar issues. So I gathered them for meetings. And like I mentioned before, when alliances are built, uh, it's needed for organizations to feel that uh, the other organizations know what they are about and maybe their ideology, Uh, it can be about disability or about sexuality, but also about the strategies that they use. And so that kind of learning... um, context was one of the aims with getting everyone together but then also trying to um, come up with new ideas and discuss future developments and strategies and also just keeping in touch and helping each other when needed and referencing each other when relevant and so on and i think that this has also helped some knowledge development uh, among the organizations to learn more about each other's work and also maybe trying to implement it in their own organizations or actually strengthening their own profile to know that, okay, they are doing that and that's great but we're actually wanting to do it another way but we don't feel like we are competing uh, against each other but rather working in parallel and doing you know, equally good work but in different ways.
1: Right. Um. I was wondering if you could comment on the politics of funding in the disability advocacy space. Um, do you think funding structures influence advocacy initiatives led by big organizations? And, and how does it impact grassroots disability justice activism?
2: Yeah, I definitely think that it does, because especially in the UK, going back to that example, there had been many years of austerity and cutbacks to services. So most disability organizations were actually just fighting for keeping their basic rights and you know, advocating for basic rights and for disability services in general. And in that space, it wasn't really possible to bring up sexuality issues and sexuality support in particular because it was much more... Um, needed to work on the basic rights. And this also relates to the funding because the, the smaller groups working on sexuality issues didn't have maybe this general funding for disability supports and for being these large disability organizations who work on all different issues in the disability rights space. So I think there definitely needs to be another type of funding available or another type of structure which allows for these more specialized organizations or projects taking place without the necessary general disability rights advocacy because that takes up a lot of time and resources for the big organizations, which makes it also hard for them to focus on what they would maybe see as more fringe issues of disability rights, such as sexual support.
1: Mm -hmm. My next uh, question perhaps demands a very long answer, but I would still like to go ahead and ask because I'm curious. Um, What would just sexual support look like in an anti-ableist world, um, in your opinion?
2: well i would like to see like a global alliance on disability and sexuality rights because we we have the the fundamental conventions and rights in place in one way because the un convention on the rights of persons with disabilities actually has some articles that mention Uh, sexual health and the right to family life and the right to privacy and so on. So that can definitely be used in advancing these rights. But also the WHO um, recommendations on uh, sexual health and reproductive health. So I would like to see more collaboration among um, disability and sexuality rights groups across the globe. And I would like to see that they work both on sexual citizenship in policy and in practice, because I think that a wide acknowledgement of sexual citizenship is really needed for people to understand that this is part of sexual of citizenship in general. This is part of being human and of being uh, a person that is seen as a, As a grown-up for many people, they feel that if they don't have um, sexual relations or they don't know about their body, they don't feel grown-up and developed as individuals. And this, of course, also includes acknowledgement of LGBTQIA disabled people and just being acknowledged in your sexuality, whatever that is. And tying this to the social support system that I mentioned earlier, so seeing sexual citizenship within the wider uh, citizenship framework. And so when we have this policy frame of sexual citizenship, it's easier to start working on sexual citizenship in practice. And as I mentioned in the beginning, this should always be based on individuals' needs. And it should always be based on you know, what different groups of disabled people advocate for in terms of sexual support. So it shouldn't come from policymakers. It shouldn't be too detailed and narrow, because that's always a risk of exclusion. If you detail it too much, what sexual citizenship in practice means, I think that it can mean a lot of different things for different people living in different types of accommodation having different types of services and just being different individuals in general from an intersectional perspective as well
1: yeah and have your and having your uh, difference respected um absolutely um we are almost at the end of uh, our wonderful conversation um but before we let you go um Would you like to tell our audience um, what you're currently working on?
2: Yeah, so I'm back in Sweden and I'm working on a project here in Sweden about Swedish disabled people. And actually people with various kinds of impairments and chronic illnesses, as well as uh, deaf people, about what barriers they face in their sexuality, whether it's about sexual and reproductive health or in their relationships or in relation to sexual support and staff or in relation to dating and trying to meet people um so it's quite a broad project both in terms of including different different people with different experiences but also broad in the sense that i wanted to look really broadly on what is sexuality to disabled people in today's society and what problems and barriers do they face so i actually yeah just a a few days ago had a publication from this project. So maybe we can add that to the show notes. Um, So I have used the concept of sexual access as developed by Linda Mona and Russell Shuttleworth and trying to frame sexual rights in terms of actually accessibility. So we all often talk about accessibility in terms of being able to enter a building and, and the way that society is shaped, but it's not so often talked about in terms of sexual rights being access issues. So that's what I have been looking into in this project.
1: It sounds like a very important and much needed project. I'll keep an eye eye out for it. Um, Thank you so much, Julia, for being here and for being so patient because... Uh, we've been talking about this for, for months now and I'm so glad that we could finally do this. Um, thank you so yeah. much. I'm well, really happy to
2: be talking to you and talking about my book. And I was so happy for your questions. They were so initiated. I understood that you had really read it. <laughs> so I'm very happy about that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Julia. Um, have a great day ahead. Thank you, you too.